the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Well, I have to just tell you that uh, Dan Rice and I went to see the infectious diseases doctor earlier today, as is just a matter of course. He got a, a great report, and that was encouraging. This is after spending um, half a day in ER on uh, Saturday of this past, yeah, this past week. So it was encouraging to be there. We've got two more weeks of this uh, very intense therapy that he has been undergoing for the last four weeks. We're actually into the, the fourth week, and um, we're anticipating that this will resolve the problem and we won't have to move forward with, uh, with open-heart surgery. So we are so grateful for the good report. We're prepared for the possibility that uh, things could change, but we're grateful. At this moment, the, uh, the infection seems to be waning, and that's the answer that we've been, uh, been looking for. What we're trying to do in the process is to glean every lesson that God wants to teach us in the process to make sure we respond in a way that doesn't um, give uh, ultimatums. Lord, if you do this, then we'll do that. We trust him. We're following him. We are at peace. We are um, doing everything we're supposed to do and just resting in his care. And um, I think that's the right response uh, at this uh, this point. We've been through different outcomes to similar circumstances in the past, and so we're prepared for whatever. But recognize the underlying principle in this whole thing is that God is good. He cares for us. He has Dan's best interest at heart and ours as a couple. And so um, we're feeling pretty good just in general, uh, whatever the report uh, is now or might be at some point in the future. So just wanted to give you that update, uh, which also means today was a bit of a peculiar day because trying to fit in a doctor's appointment and get a show together and all of that uh, can be a bit of a challenge. And for that reason, we have... Um, just at the last minute, a guest confirmed, yeah, I can come and join you on the show. And uh, Clark is still trying to figure out what on earth we're doing today. Every uh, afternoon, I give him what we call a show sheet, and it outlines these are the subjects I'm going to be talking about. These are the people we're interviewing and so on. And I gave him a complete uh, sheet. And then just before the program began moments ago, I handed him something else with some other things on it. So on that updated show sheet, it includes a conversation with John Lott, who is the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. We're going to talk with him. Uh, I should mention he's also the author of the book, The War on Guns. We're going to talk about a new survey on who is purchasing concealed weapons. And you might be surprised which uh, which groups uh, are purchasing more uh, of these uh, concealed weapons uh, permits and weapons. Also, we're going to share a conversation that I had uh, a few weeks back with Stephen Bauman. He's the author of Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. Uh, we had anticipated uh, a, a different guest earlier today. Uh, the book did not arrive, and I, I just could not do justice to that conversation without having read the book. And so we're postponing uh, The Null Prophecy, uh, which is a thriller based on real-life events, kind of a Joel Rosenberg idea, but this in the area of science. He's a, a noted physicist, and 
uh, we'll reschedule that conversation for another time. But that's um, at least some of what we'll be doing uh, today. Well, the headline, the juice is, well, almost loose. That will be in October. O.J. Simpson, who is the disgraced former football great, was granted parole earlier today. uh, This is from his 33-year prison sentence for an armed robbery that has kept him behind bars in Nevada since 2008. Uh, He spoke from the Lovelock Correctional Facility to the um, parole board saying, I've done my time. I've done it as well and respectfully as anyone can. He's now 70 years old. He was speaking to the parole board members via a video conference. The board members came to their decision in a unanimous four to zero vote to which Simpson reportedly uh, was very emotional, saying thank you, thank you, thank you, as he rose from his seat to return to his prison cell where he will remain until October. Simpson was eligible for or is eligible for release on the first of that month. Uh, Simpson told the parole board that he planned to move to Florida after his release from jail. Captain Sean Arruti, who is uh, with the Nevada Division of Parole and Probation, told reporters that Florida parole officials, they have up to 45 days to accept or reject Simpson. Now, this is a process I was completely unfamiliar with. Uh, If uh, the parolee says, I want to move to another state, that state has to say, yes, you are welcome here. Um, Arudi noted that uh, the acceptance rate is pretty high when the paroled prisoner has family in that state, as Simpson does in Florida. And he added that if Florida won't allow Simpson to move there, the department would uh, work with him to plan to stay in Nevada or to pick another state uh, if he has a plan and support system in that area. So it's highly likely that he will be permitted to uh, move to uh, Florida, and he would connect with the parole system there. Simpson appeared in the hearing room as inmate number 1027820. He was dressed in a blue prison uniform, of course. Right now, I'm at a point, he said, I'm at a point in my life where I want to spend as much time with uh, my kids and my friends. He added that he uh, told prison wardens upon arrival that he wouldn't pose a problem and has kept his word. Well, Simpson, who famously was found not guilty in the killing of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend Ronald Goldman in 1995, went to prison in 2008 over an armed robbery a year earlier involving two sports memorabilia dealers in Las Vegas in a hotel room. He was um, convicted of enlisting men he barely knew, including two who had guns, to retrieve uh, two sports collectibles um, sellers, uh, some items that he said were really his belongings, and uh, he has been in prison for nine years uh, ever since. But again, uh, O.J. Simpson will be released on parole, and I'm not clear what period of time that parole will stay in place, but he'll uh, be released on the 1st of October. Meanwhile, Senator John McCain revealed that he has a a, a primary brain tumor. The cancer was discovered during uh, cranial surgery last week to remove a blood clot above his left eye. In a statement from Mayo Clinic, uh, uh, John McCain's doctors described the tumor as glioblastoma. Uh, These tumors are typically malignant. They're difficult to treat, according to physicians, because they contain so many types of cells. This is according to the American Brain Tumor Association. Dr. Joseph Sabramski, a neurosurgeon at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, who's not involved in McCain's treatment, said it's a very aggressive tumor. In general, it's a tumor that has a relentless force. You can slow it down, but not stop it. The median survival rate for the most common type of glioblastoma is 14 
14.6 months, according to the American Brain Tumor Association. And about 30 percent of patients live two years with the uh, with that form of cancer. The 80 year old McCain is uh, reviewing treatment options with his family. Those could include a combination of chemotherapy and radiation, according to the Mayo statement. Scanning done since the procedure, a minimally invasive um, uh, procedure uh, that uh, comes with an eyebrow incision, shows that the tissue of concern was completely uh, resected by uh, imaging criteria, the Mayo uh, Clinic said in their statement. The senator and his family are reviewing further treatment options with his Mayo uh, care team. Treatment options may include a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. The senator's doctors say he is recovering from his surgery amazingly well and his uh, underlying health is excellent. A written statement from McCain's office reiterated that the six-term senator, 2008 Republican presidential nominee and former prison of war in Vietnam, is in good spirits as he recovers at his home in Arizona. In fact, he tweeted he'll be back soon to uh, to the Senate after the brain cancer diagnosis. Um, I greatly appreciate the outpouring of support. Unfortunately for my sparring partners in Congress, I'll be back soon. So stand by, Mr. McCain, the Arizona senator said. Um, the diagnosis, again, comes uh, as Republicans face an extremely close vote on health care repeal and replace plan. Mr. McCain's uh, vote is seen as crucial with a thin majority. Uh, in fact, they postponed that vote, uh, believing that he would uh, have a, a fairly speedy recovery from the procedure done just days ago. Uh, the blood clot in his uh, eyelid, uh, not having any idea that his uh, stay may end up being much, uh, much longer. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, I want to talk about what happens if John McCain can't go back to work in the Senate, at least in the short term. That and much more. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Mentioning the fact that Senator John McCain uh, announced yesterday that he has been diagnosed with brain cancer. And, of course, whenever a member of Congress is out for any length of time for any reason, it's inopportune for whatever is happening uh, in terms of public policy. And Senator McCain has been the first to make that point. It raises some questions of what would happen if we were unable to carry out his duties in the U.S. Senate, either for the short or the long term. It could trigger a rather... Um, well, a free-for-all, if you will, next year. Under Arizona law, if McCain were no longer able to serve, the governor had to would have to appoint a replacement who has to be from the same party. The successor would serve until the next statewide election. The winner of that election would serve out the, uh, the unexpired term, which ends in 2022. The law would allow Governor Doug Ducey to appoint himself to fill that seat, according to legal experts as well. More likely, political analysts say, is that uh, Ducey would name a placeholder someone to hold the seat until the special election and then bow, uh, bow out. McCain's departure would set up the possibility of two U.S. Senate elections in Arizona in 2018. The McCain seat and Republican Senator Jeff Flake's defense of his seat. Now, that could give Arizona voters the power to decide which party controls the U.S. Senate. Now, since U.S. Senate seats don't come up, um, don't come open very often in Arizona, just 12 men have held the two seats since statehood 105 years ago. And the terms are six years, uh, expect several members of Congress to consider a run for that seat. 
or for both seats for that matter. McCain's office is optimistic of, of uh, his return to his duty, saying uh, last night in the statement, further consultations with Senator McCain's Mayo Clinic care team will indicate when he will return to the United States Senate. The tumor, as I mentioned in the previous segment, is glioblastoma. It's a highly malignant, aggressive, cancerous tumor, according to the American Brain Tumor Association. John McCain is 80 years old. He is uh, getting treatment, including chemotherapy and radiation at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, do keep he, him and um, his family in your prayers. Well, there's um, there's something more than a little, well, jarring in the ongoing humiliation of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Um, and in an ill-time, well, ill-focused interview with the New York Times, President Trump revisited his disdain for Sessions, his first most ardent and most loyal supporter in the Senate. When supporting Trump was still considered career suicide, Sessions donned the red cap anyway. Maybe it will prove um, fatal for Sessions' career after all. Well, the president hasn't made a secret of the fact that he blames Sessions for the scandal that now engulfs the Trump administration, claiming in uh, contravention of all available evidence that somehow if Sessions had not recused himself from the investigation into Trump's 2016 campaign, that his White House would not be under siege. How do you take a job and then recuse yourself, Trump said to reporters rhetorically. If you would have uh, if uh, he had recused recused himself before the job, I would have said, thanks, Jeff, but I'm not going to take you. It's extremely unfair. And that's a mild word to the president. End quote. Well, Sessions seemed an odd target for Trump's blame, given how other members of his inner circle, including himself, I would say, and, and his son, his son-in-law, his former campaign chairman and his former national security advisor, have all laid the president open to the scrutiny of special counsel Robert Mueller. But it is evident that Trump sees Sessions' decision as the personal betrayal and that the president expected the attorney general to protect him from such inquiries or injuries in this case. This suggests that Trump didn't know Sessions very well when he picked him since the Alabama's devotion to procedural probity is so well known in Washington. He's never been much for cutting corners. Well, there simply was no way for Sessions to oversee an investigation into a campaign of which he was a part. It's not complicated. Well, here's where Trump's cynicism and his criticism uh, trips him up. The president no doubt believes that Sessions' predecessor, Loretta Lynch, quashed the investigation into Hillary Clinton's mishandling of state secrets. Trump might think that it would have it would be only appropriate for his attorney general to do the same for him. Well, Trump's 2016 pitch was centered on the idea that he, as a lifelong manipulator of a rigged system, was better suited than anyone to be in charge. Some may have thought that this meant Trump would know how to clean up Washington, but perhaps others just wanted him to win at the same uh, at the same game. Well, as we hear the president and his uh, defenders complain about things that Clinton and her husband got away with over the years, it occurs to many observers that the House of Clinton, the most ethically compromised, scandal-ridden political operation since at least Richard Nixon's uh, goon squad, makes a rather poor benchmark by which to measure good conduct. Well, Sessions obviously believed that Trump wanted to use his uh, knowledge of the rigged game to clean it up. He may have misunderstood. And uh, watching what happens next will be uh, something that will preoccupy many for 
weeks and weeks to come. Well, Attorney General Sessions announced a new directive strengthening the government's ability to seize property of suspected criminals that clashed with reforms some conservatives had advocated. As uh, any of these laws and law enforcement partners will tell you, and as President Donald Trump knows well, civil asset forfeiture is a key tool that helps law enforcement defund organized crime, take back ill-gotten gains and prevent new crimes from being committed. And it weakens the criminals and the cartels. Session speaking to law enforcement groups on Wednesday in Washington said, well, civil asset forfeiture is when a law enforcement agency can temporarily take the property or cash it suspects was involved in a crime, in some cases without bringing formal charges against the owner of that property, which has prompted concerns among those on both sides of the aisle regarding property and due process rights. Well, Sessions said the directive had input from the Task Force on Criminal Reduction and Public Safety, career federal prosecutors and career officials in the Justice Department criminal divisions, money laundering, and asset recovery section. Even more importantly, it helps return property to the victims of crime. Civil asset forfeiture takes the material support of the criminals and instead makes it the material support of law enforcement. Funding priorities like new vehicles, bulletproof vests, opioid overdose reversal kits, and better training. In departments across the country, funds that were once used to take lives are now being used to save lives, the Attorney General went on to say. But Senator Mike Lee out of Utah said the Justice Department is moving in the wrong direction. Back in May, I encouraged the Department of Justice to review its policies on civil asset forfeiture in light of increasing indications from the Supreme Court that this practice is constitutionally suspect. Lee, in a statement, went on to say, instead of revising forfeiture practices in a manner to better protect Americans' due process rights, the Department of Justice seems to seems determined rather to loose in court before uh, it changes its policies for the better. Well, on the 31st of May, uh, Senator Lee and a bipartisan group of senators sent a letter to the Justice Department calling for additional reforms to civil asset forfeiture before the Supreme Court steps in. State and local law enforcement, in some cases hamstrung by state laws that strongly back property rights, can recruit federal support to seize property of criminal suspects before a conviction, says uh, Jason. Sneed, the legal policy analyst at Heritage and our guest earlier this week. For instance, if a suspect was carrying a large amount of cash that local law enforcement perceived to be potential drug money, the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration could take that clash. Well, Sneed noted that many conservatives and libertarians support changes that uh, the Obama administration attorney general uh, Eric Holder made, which largely curtailed the program of cooperating with local law enforcement in 2015. This is an unfortunate step in the wrong direction, and it's out of sync with what lawmakers in Congress and state lawmakers are doing, Sneed went on to say. Already, 24 states had rolled back or abolished civil asset forfeiture. There are proposals in Congress to reform the measure. The public believes there should be checks in place. But the attorney general, who's already uh, raised the ire of the president, um, is on the opposite side of that question. When asked by reporters earlier today whether or not he intended to remain in that post, he said absolutely he loves the job and remain as uh, as long as um, it's possible, feasible, or, uh, well, as long as the president allows him to serve. Because, as you know, the attorney general and every other cabinet member serves at the pleasure of the president, the executive. 30 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with the president of the, the Crime Prevention Research Center and author of uh, The War on Guns. John Lott will join us to talk about a new such study on concealed gun permits. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll hear from John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, author of The War on Guns. We'll talk about concealed weapons permits and why the numbers are rising, what that might mean. We'll also hear from Stephen Bauman, author of Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. Well, the United States Postal Service violated federal law by letting employees do union-funded work for Hillary Clinton's campaign and other Democratic candidates while on leave from the agency, according to an Office of Special Counsel report. Uh, The OSC, the Office of Special Counsel, determined that the United States Postal Service engaged in systematic violations of the Hatch Act. That's a federal law that limits certain political activities of federal employees. And while employees are allowed to do some political work on leave, the report said the Postal Service showed a bias favoring the union's 2016 campaign operation. The investigation was launched months ago after Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs Chairman Ron Johnson brought uh, constituent complaints to the OSC in October. The constituent, identified as a USPS uh, employee, was concerned the Postal Service incurred unnecessary overtime costs and improperly coordinated with the National Association of Letter Carriers when it released members for several weeks of union official leave without pay to participate in campaign work. While the Labor 2016 program sought to elect Hillary Clinton and uh, pro-worker candidates across the country, the report said, citing campaign work like door-to-door canvassing, phone banks, and other get-out-the-vote efforts. According to the report, roughly 97 uh, members requested the leave without pay to participate. The uh, national, and this is the uh, the uh, union, uh, the NALC, which endorsed Clinton last June, compensated those uh, postal workers uh, using the letter carrier political fund, the union's PAC. Well, according to the report, 82 percent of the work took place in 2016 in battleground states, Florida, Nevada, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Officials at multiple levels apparently were involved, according to the um, uh, the investigating agency, the acting special counsel, Adam Miles, uh, the the union provided lists of letter carriers to participate in campaign activity to a senior headquarters uh, labor relations official at the post office who then emailed the list to other postal officials across the country. According to Miles, the local officials interpreted the communication as directives from the Postal Service headquarters to release those carriers on union official leave without pay. According to the report, local supervisors raised concerns about the impact this would have on postal operations and initially objected to releasing them, but the Postal Service managers instructed local supervisors to let the workers participate. We concluded that the Postal Service practice of facilitating and directing carrier releases for the union's political activity resulted in an institutional bias in favor of uh, their endorsed political candidates, which the Hatch Act prohibits, Miles said in prepared testimony before the Senate Homeland Security Committee, which is set to hold hearings uh, on the uh, the matter. But the Postal Service Postmaster General Megan Brennan said that senior postal leadership did not in any way guide union leaders in selecting the candidates for whom uh, employees could campaign and that the Postal Service did not approve or choose candidates for the unions to support or ask the union to advocate for political candidates on behalf of the Postal Service. She also noted that our postal unions do not speak for the Postal Service and the Postal Service does not speak for the unions. Brennan wrote in her uh, prepared testimony insisting the Postal Service did not seek to assist 
the uh, union's favored candidates. This especially applies in a political context, but it is inherent in any collective bargaining relationship. Well, Brennan said that the practice to grant leave without pay for the uh, union's political activity has been in place for approximately 20 years, but that all violations of the Hatch Act were unintentional. Uh, we will change our practice in consultation with the uh, the union and the investigating body, and based upon the uh, their guidance, this will ensure that we do not put our, our people in harm's way and they do not unintentionally run afoul of the Hatch Act. So there doesn't seem to be a penalty associated with it, but it was found that violations of the Hatch Act were in fact made. Meanwhile, Donald Trump Jr. has been called to testify next week before the Senate Judiciary Committee about Russia's attempted meddling in the presidential race. Uh, The president's son has been in the news over his uh, June 2016 meeting with a Russian attorney over possible damaging information on the Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. While that information was not forthcoming, that was the impression that led the uh, president's son to to take the meeting. Democrats appointed to the meeting to argue collusion between the Trump campaign and Russian government. The Trump campaign has denied that accusation. Former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, who attended the meeting with uh, Trump Jr., is also invited to testify before the the committee. A news release from the committee said it expects that all witnesses will comply voluntarily with the invitations to testify, but that it will issue subpoenas if necessary to Trump Jr. and Manafort. Both have already said they intend to testify. The June 26 hearing will be about oversight of the Foreign Agents uh, Registration Act and attempts to influence U.S. elections, the advisory said. Uh, Manafort received the letter inviting him to testify from uh, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, the committee's chairman, and is uh, looking at uh, looking it over. Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, who now works as a White House advisor, is also expected to appear before the Senate Intelligence Committee next week. Kushner also attended the meeting with Trump Jr. and Manafort. Working with and being responsive to the schedule of the committee, we have arranged Mr. Kushner's uh, interview with the Senate for July the 24th, his attorney said, Abe Lowell. Uh, he will continue to cooperate and appreciate the opportunity, or rather appreciates the opportunity to assist in putting this matter to rest. My guess is it won't be put to rest, but one can always hope. Well, the city of Seattle is experimenting with a uh, first-in-line nation uh, program uh, that potentially makes every adult a campaign donor. I already don't like it. I like to choose if I'm going to donate or not. But under the Democracy Voucher Program, every resident who is a registered voter has been mailed four $25 vouchers. Only candidates can redeem the vouchers for cash. But first, they have to convince the people holding those vouchers to sign them over, which is why John Grant rarely uh, meets someone without asking them for their voucher. This is one of the candidates there. Well, under the Democracy Voucher Program, every resident who is registered to vote has been mailed those vouchers. Only candidates can redeem them. We are funding our campaign through the Democracy Voucher Program, says this candidate. Uh, speaking to a homeowner in the Georgetown neighborhood of of Seattle. So far, his strategy has worked. His campaign has collected more than $200,000 in vouchers. He says 95% of the money has come from vouchers. I think uh, what's really exciting about this is every uh, voter now has uh, kind of a level playing field, says Grant. Each has $100, which is essentially a coupon that you can give to a candidate that matches your values. 
Not everyone is thrilled with the program, however. It's funded by a property tax worth $30 million over 10 years, which the city calculates will cost the average homeowner about $12 a year. That's $12 that they've earned that they cannot spend as uh, as they might choose on something other than a political campaign. It's not about the amount of money for Mark Elster, a Seattle resident who, along with another resident, um, uh, and help from the Freedom Foundation, a conservative think tank, has sued to stop the program. Elster doesn't support any of the candidates running for office and feels his money is providing political speech uh, to those with whom he vehemently disagrees. Well, with three weeks to go before the uh, primary, only 4% of the vouchers have actually been returned and cashed in by candidates who uh, qualify. It's a clear violation of the First Amendment's uh, rights, uh, critics say. With free speech comes the right not to speak. Wayne Barnett, executive director of the Seattle Ethics and Elections Commission, would not comment directly on the lawsuit but defends the voucher program, saying most people have never had a candidate knock on their door and ask them to make a campaign contribution. It's empowering to people in a way they've never been empowered before. Well, it's only empowering if people choose to exercise that, well, obligation, uh, the money that's been extracted from them for this purpose alone. He went on to say that most people have never had the, had this experience. About 500,000 registered voters were mailed vouchers, but many more people were eligible to receive them if they applied. Non-citizens who are in the county legally can't vote, but they can get the $100 uh, vouchers. Uh, John Grant makes no apologies for seeking vouchers for ev- from everyone. The former director of the uh, Tenants Union, who's been endorsed by the Democratic Socialist Party, has collected vouchers from government subsidized renters, new immigrants and some people living in illegal homeless camps. It pushed him into fundraising uh, lead and has allowed him to have six paid campaign staffers. Two years ago, when he ran for the same seat against the incumbent, he raised $75,000 through November and he uh, could pay only one person. So this is being underwritten by taxpayers, many of whom simply do not want to uh, to participate. One goal of uh, the democracy voucher program is to reduce the amount of of, an influence of money in politics in exchange for receiving vouchers. Candidates agree to spend to a spending cap. The primary cap is one hundred and fifty thousand dollars from any combination of vouchers and private donations. And as I mentioned, um, the uh, Mr. Barnett has already uh, Uh, received vouchers from some 500,000 potential voters in the Seattle area. We'll continue to follow that uh, lawsuit and see what happens. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the next hour, we'll talk with John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. And we'll also talk with uh, Stephen Bauman, author of Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. Well, fake news is the, uh, the bellowed slogan of the moment. Douglas Perry uh, writes that the, uh, the Internet, uh, by uh, obliterating traditional barriers to mass dissemination of information has commodified truth like never before, making it easy for anybody to massage facts as the market dictates. Well, it's only going to get worse. I suppose that's not altogether surprising, but it is somewhat disheartening. Soon you won't be able to believe anything anymore, at least not in terms of the news. Right now, news consumers can at least trust their eyes and ears when they witness their leaders talking on television or in web videos. Enjoy it while it lasts, which won't be for much longer. Computer vision researchers at the University of Washington have figured out how to create fake video of well-known people, anyone that is, who's been filmed talking a lot, 
As The Atlantic puts it, computer scientists can now make realistic lip-syncing videos, ostensibly putting anyone's word into another person's mouth. Now, I've actually seen this done using President Obama. Uh, an image of him speaking in a television interview, and you hear him speak, you watch his lips move, you hear what he said. I remember when he said it originally. Then uh, you see Barack Obama in an entirely different setting, and those words said um, uh, while he's in, the president of the United States in formal wear, now coming out of his mouth when he was a student at, uh, at the university. And you cannot tell that he is not at that moment speaking those words. Uh, the video um, shows the president. Um, it, it was a split screen, the president on the right side, the student on the left side. Uh, they use audio from two separate interviews uh, and the fake video recreation of uh, Barack Obama, the younger, before he's president, uttering the words that he uttered as a president and a much older man is virtually undetectable. The UW researchers say the innovation could be used for various virtual reality purposes and to improve video conferencing. Facebook, Google, Intel, and Samsung helped fund the research, the Atlantic reports. But needless to say, the technology also potentially could be used by unscrupulous sorts of uh, of people, world leaders, generals, shareholders uh, to fool voters and others, and for that matter, uh, cultural leaders and so on. Anyone with eyes and ears and access to a television or a computer, a screen of some kind. What's going to come from this is an open question. Time will tell. But maybe old fashioned retail politics and face to face meetings uh, will see an unexpected revival. But when you're talking about uh, leaders of large groups of people, that simply is not possible. But it's scarily convincing how these fake video tools can put words into the mouth of an individual who did not utter them. And uh, I've seen it firsthand for myself and this new technology, as the headline for this particular article puts it, uh, suggests that um, the end of reality as we know it in terms of what we see and hear, or at least what we think we see and hear, it sort of makes what you read in scripture about the end times and how certain things are said and done that seemed totally implausible before, how, how now they seem entirely uh, doable with with uh, far less effort than we ever could have imagined, at least for me as a younger a younger person. Well, for weeks, the world has been watching with rapt attention the saga of uh, Charlie Gard, the case involving a desperately ill child. He's 11 months old, fighting for survival in the face of U.K. government efforts to uh, block treatment. Charlie's parents, they've been relentless. They've been fighting the government and seeking help abroad. Well, their efforts are already bearing fruit. Most recently, as we've been discussing, a judge has agreed to reevaluate a previous decision barring the parents from seeking alternative treatment for their son here in the United States. Well, here at home, there are differing opinions, but the general reaction is one of outrage that a government official could make a decision about what's best for a child over the objections of the child's parents, combined with a scene of relief that this is not the status quo in the United States. Unfortunately, according to Melissa Fowles, writing for the Daily Signal, This is not quite accurate. Under a little-known regulation referred to as Certificate of Need, a majority of states actually place unelected government officials in the position of deciding what types of medical facilities and treatment uh, options are available in local communities. And while the Charlie Gard case, it involves other issues as well, government intervention in care is at the heart of the dispute. And under Certificate of Needs laws, any provider that wants to expand certain types of facilities and medical technology or purchase additional 
equipment must first ask the state for permission. Now, the original rationale for these regulations was to prevent providers from competing with one another based on the size or luxuriousness of their facilities and then passing the cost of those bells and whistles down to their patients. Lawmakers were also sure that uh, by assured rather by many community hospitals that the institutions would be able to provide more clarity um, and uh, extend care to those who might not otherwise have insurance or be able to afford it because those efforts would be subsidized by wealthier patients who would have no choice but to use the community hospitals. Research has shown, however, that states with certificate of need laws actually have more expensive health care and provide a lower quality of medical services. Also, many of the hospitals in certificate of need states don't provide additional charity cases as a result of the laws. Instead, the laws end up protecting local monopolies by allowing providers to charge more for less service. Now, things have gotten so bad that under successive administrations of both parties, the Federal Trade Commission has sent letters of, to status, or rather to states, urging them to end their certificate of need programs because they are anti-competitive. Well, most states have ignored this advice, sometimes with a devastating consequence. One heartbreaking example included the case of a prematurely delivered infant dying while waiting for transport because the hospitals uh, where the child was born lacked a neonatal intensive care unit and doctors needed to an incubator to stabilize the newborn. The twist, however, is that just a few years prior, the hospital's request to build such a unit was rejected by Virginia on the basis that it was not in the best interest of the community, a chilling precursor of the British Supreme Court decision that denied Charlie treatment because it determined it was not in his best interest. Well, the biggest difference between the high-profile case in the U.K. and the the Certificate of Need programs here in the United States is that most of us never realize that the government has denied us access to certain health care options. For lawmakers, to in certificate of need states tweeting about the ills of the UK healthcare system. Now is the time for some serious introspection about how our own state governments are getting in the way of improved patient care here. The lives of their constituents might depend on it. So while the situations are are different, there are some similarities that provide a great opportunity, perhaps a great excuse to revisit how things and how decisions are made here in this country. Meanwhile, Jerry Coyne, who is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Human Evolution at the University of Chicago, recently posted a defense of killing disabled infants on his Why Evolution is True blog, writing, if you are allowed to abort a fetus that has a severe genetic defect, uh, microencephaly, spina bifida, or so on, then why aren't you able to euthanize that same fetus just after it's born? His argument, which is riddled with flaws and mistaken assumptions, begins with a claim commonly found in the works of pro-infanticide philosophers and tenured professors. After all, he writes, newborn babies aren't aware of death, aren't nearly as sentient as the older child or adult, and have no rational faculties to make judgments, and if there's severe mental disability, would never develop such faculties. It makes little sense to keep alive a suffering child who is doomed to die or suffer life in a vegetative or horribly painful state, end quote. Well, in short... Lack of sentience and reason boosts the moral acceptability of killing deformed and handicapped infants. I mean, Adolf Hitler could not have put it more uh, cleverly. This reasoning makes sense uh, only in a throwaway culture that presumes that it's right to discard the weakest and most vulnerable simply because they don't meet an arbitrary imposed marker of which life and when life is worth saving. 
It's the logic of Aldous Huxley in The Brave New World. Eliminate any responsibility to care for the suffering by trying to remove all suffering. The problem, however, is that killing is a poor means of reducing pain and suffering. It fosters a culture that undermines the value of life. And this isn't merely words on a page. In the Netherlands, for example, some patients have been euthanized because they were tired of living. As the Washington Post reported in a recent story on assisted suicide, promoting death is a recipe for more suffering and loss, not less. You can read more at the National Review. University of Chicago professor, infanticide is morally acceptable. Jeff Simino is the, uh, the writer of that column. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with John Lott. He's the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, author of a new study. We'll talk about it when we come back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, we're going to hear from Stephen Bauman, author of Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. Stick around for that. Well, every year brings a new record increase in the number of concealed handgun permits. The rate of growth in permits among women and minorities has far outpaced growth among Caucasian males. Well, the data paints a picture of incredibly law-abiding permit holders, the vast majority living outside America's insular media capitals. Well, a new report from the Crime Prevention Research Center shows that there are now more than 16.3 million concealed handgun permits in the United States, and that's up from uh, 1.83 million since last July. Well, here to talk with us about this uh, uh, report and uh, these numbers, what they might mean, is John Lott. He's the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center and author, most recently, of The War on Guns. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Now, we know that the uh, the increase in uh, requests for concealed weapons permits increased under the previous administration's um, the agenda of uh, former President Obama and Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. Um, it, it, but is that an explanation as to why the, the numbers are increasing so much and uh, why certain demographics are seeking uh, handgun permits more than uh, might be expected? Right. Well, uh, I guess I would have said definitely yes, but uh, after the election last November, we've continued to see the same rate of increase, basically, uh, in concealed carry permits. I would have thought that the rate would have dropped off uh, considerably, but that hasn't been the case. We um, And so while some of it may have been due to what you say, uh, concern about uh, gun regulations or whatever that uh, President Obama or uh, Hillary Clinton threatened if she had won the uh, election, it obviously can't explain all of it because we've continued to see this increase afterwards. Now, we're seeing the greatest increase among women and minorities. Uh, explain what your report tells us about these populations and uh, perhaps explains to some degree why the, the increase in uh, handgun permits. Right. Well, uh, if you look at the time period from 2012 to 2016, we have data for 14 states that break it down by gender and by race. And what you find is that uh, over that period of time, while the percent of growth in permits for men increased by 22%, for women over those same four years, it increased by 93%, a much, much faster rate of increase. There's now about 36% 
of the permit holders in the United States are women. And you've seen a similar faster increase uh, for blacks. They've Their rate of growth for permits uh, increased about 30% faster than it did uh, did for, for whites. Um, and, you know, it's long been clear that the people who benefit the most have basically been two groups. You basically have had the people who who are most likely to be victims of violent crime. Those overwhelmingly have tended to be poor blacks who live in high-crime urban areas. And also people who are relatively weaker physically, women and the elderly. Um, you know, for each additional permit that you would see, you'd see greater drops in violent crime rates when those people would have gotten the permits. And so partly, I think what's happening, and, and this is borne out by some survey data, that uh, women and blacks uh, have much more positive attitude towards guns than they did in the past. Uh, you, know, you have surveys, for example, over that period of time that asked women, would owning a gun in the home uh, make you safer or increase the risks of something bad happening? And uh, uh, now, in the most recent polls, you actually find women, a majority of women, saying that owning a gun makes them safer. Um, and you've seen a similar change for blacks, so it isn't quite as large. But what seems to be happening is that uh, those groups seem to have a more positive attitude towards guns in terms of understanding the safety benefits that uh, it gives them. Um, you know, if you're the most likely victims of violent crime, uh, you know, police are important, but they can't be there all the time and that they recognize the benefits for uh, being able to go and protect themselves more. One of the points you make in the report is that the uh, the numbers show how out of sync the media capitals are, California, New York, District of Columbia, with the rest of the country. Right. Well, you look at those areas and uh, you may see uh, three permits for every thousand people. Uh, if you look at the country outside of those three places, uh, about 8% of, uh, of people have permits, or about 80 per, per thousand. And, uh, um, you know, so I suppose it's not too surprising that uh, the people who live in New York City or California or Washington, D.C., they have kind of a skewed image of what the rest of the country might be like, because, uh, you know, it's maybe they're kind of fearful because they just don't understand how incredibly law-abiding permit holders are. Mm -hmm. So is there a correlation between areas, uh, and this is geographically, areas where there are higher numbers of permits uh, to crime rates? Um, Is that one of the markers of where uh, these permits are being sought? Well, what you find is that the places that have seen the the states, which have seen the largest increases in concealed carry permits, have seen the largest relative drops in violent crimes, uh, murder for each uh, 1% relative increase that you see in concealed carry permits in area, you see about a 1% drop in murder rates. Well, that's very interesting. One wonders if uh, it's understood that, you know, that house I break into or that person whose purse I attempt to, to take uh, might be armed, lawfully armed, is a deterrent for those who would otherwise take advantage of an unarmed population. Right. Well, I mean, does you, as you can make it riskier for criminals to commit mm-hmm. crimes, if you have higher arrest rates or higher conviction rates, the fact that a would-be victim might be able to go and defend themselves could also, in theory, make it riskier for criminals to go and commit crimes. And that's surely consistent with what we see. You see that as the percentage 
of the adult population with concealed carry permits go up, it's riskier for criminals to go and commit certain types of crimes, and you see reductions in those crimes occurring. What does that say about um, uh, law enforcement and people's confidence that law enforcement uh, is going to protect them? And obviously they can't be everywhere all the time, but does this reflect any uh, anything changing views on law enforcement and the role that they historically have played in protecting the public? Uh, well, I haven't seen polls breaking that down, but... Uh you know, my research finds that police are extremely important in reducing violent crime. Uh, I don't think, in my mind, I don't think there's any other single factor that's as effective as reducing violent crime as police are. But I think the police themselves, from surveys of police, understand that they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after mm-hmm. the crimes occur. And police know in their own life how important guns are for protecting them and, and the jobs that they do. And uh, look at surveys of police, and you find that police are probably one group in the country that have the strongest support for private ownership of guns. Um, there are lots of different surveys of police, but one organization, Police One, which is the largest private organization of police in the country, they have about 450,000 members, uh, 380,000 of those are active full-time law enforcement. The other 70,000 are retired. But uh, surveys of their members show that about almost 80% of uh, police think that uh, private ownership of guns is either extremely or very important in reducing crime rates. Uh, you find over 90% of police believe that uh, concealed carry uh, is important for reducing crime. And you'll see things like uh, uh, about 86% of police believe that uh, uh, if you were to get rid of gun-free zones, uh, areas where private citizens uh, you know, have a difficulty getting permits yeah, to yeah. be able to carry. We're out of time, but I appreciate so much your uh, taking the time to talk with us about this latest report. John Lott, thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. It's the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, my last guest, Stephen Bauman, um, suggested that we not uh, give in to a culture of fear, but I did want to pass along an FBI warning. They've issued a privacy warning to parents over Internet-connected toys. Now, we've talked a bit about this before, but they say that GPS, microphones, and cameras could lead to child exploitation. That innocent little clever toy uh, can be manipulated by those who are we really don't have your child's best interest at heart. Well, they've warned parents of privacy and safety risks from these children's toys connected to the Internet. In an advisory that they posted on their website, and again, we're talking about the Federal Bureau of Investigation, they say that these toys can contain parts or capabilities such as microphones, cameras, GPS data storage, speech recognition that can disclose personal information. Now, you might wonder, you know, my five-year-old is connected to the Internet. What information could be collected that could be useful? You'd be amazed um, how those who with nefarious motives might misuse uh, that kind of information. Normal conversation with a toy or in the surrounding environment can disclose a child's name, their school, likes and dislikes and activities, according to the FBI. I think this is the first time the FBI has issued such a warning, says uh, Todd Beardsley. He's the director of research at cybersecurity firm Rapid7. 
In a telephone interview, he says a lot of people tend to trust the FBI as a government organization, so it definitely raises awareness of the risk associated with Internet-connected toys. Well, smart toys, as they're called, uh, and entertainment devices are gaining popularity for incorporating technologies that learn and tailor their behaviors based on user interactions. In fact, in other words, they're collecting information about your habits, your preferences, things you like and dislike. And while as an adult, that may seem a little bit creepy, and we can imagine how that information could be misused when you're talking about children, apparently that's still the case. In February, uh, Germany banned sales and ownership of a talking doll named Kyla, Uh, It was made in the United States by the company Genesis Toys, and they cited risks of hacking associated with the toy. Again, who would have thought? Well, the country's federal network agency recommended that parents who had bought the toy for their, uh, their children destroy it. Well, speaking earlier this year, David M., who's a principal security researcher at a, a lab, says the doll is equipped with a Bluetooth chip to enable it to answer questions through the Internet. However, it also asks for sensitive information, such as hometown, parents, and user's name, and school. Concerns about the doll, therefore, center mainly around privacy, the fact that secrets entrusted to the doll by a child could be accessed by a hacker. The problem was first flagged in December of last year when the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, they filed a complaint, and they said the toys violate the, child, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA, should probably be aware of it, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. The FTC complaint said that uh, Genesis, the maker of the doll, doesn't take response, rather, doesn't take reasonable security measures to prevent an unauthorized person from using Bluetooth to connect with the toy and therefore connect with the child. Well, it uh, it is uh, once again something of a uh, of a, a creepy notion. Experts have also warned about the Hello Barbie and that that can be hacked. In 2015, an expert claimed Mattel's Wi-Fi enabled Barbie can be hacked and that the toy could even act like a surveillance device by listening into a family's conversations. Now, again, this seems a bit peculiar, but that's where we are at this stage in the 21st century, which if you apply your imagination gives you some idea what the future might hold. Um, This uh, follows on uh, the news that a hacker obtained photos of children and chat logs from toy maker VTech, which makes electronic learning devices. Now, the doll connects to the Internet via Wi-Fi so it can search responses to questions via software company Toy Talk. It also has a microphone to record the child's speech and respond to them uh, because the doll remembers conversations and learns from the data to provide tailored response. responses. Rather, It almost seems like she's alive, explained the firm. I mean, that's the benefit. That's why kids and families are uh, drawn to it. But there's the other side of that coin. And while this may sound revolutionary, Chicago-based security researcher Matt uh, Jakubowski told NBC that he's discovered the toy is vulnerable to hacking. He hacked the doll's operating system to get access to network names and IDs. Once inside a network, he said it was easy to access account information, stored audio files, as well as gain access to the microphone. You can take that information and find out a person's house or business, he warned. Uh, it's just a matter of time until we're able to replace their servers with ours and have her say anything we want. And while the doll only listens to a conversation, when a button is pressed and the recording is encrypted, experts are concerned a hacker could override these precautions. So um, the FBI warning is certainly not uh, one to be taken lightly. You might want to check out any children's toys that are given as gifts or uh, that the kids are just dying to have because they do have the potential to be 
uh, misused and abused. After all, we are still living here on earth in the flesh and um, crime will always be with us. Well, tomorrow on the program, uh, we're going to lighten things up, which is our typical response on a Friday. We step away from some of the more serious news. If uh, there is some breaking news, we'll certainly feature and highlight that. Uh, But if not, we're planning on uh, having a fun Friday program uh, and we'll uh, look at uh, some of the lighter side of the news. Uh, Also, I want to let you know that on Monday we are hosting our uh, Pastors Masters Golf Tournament, which is, just happens to be one of my all-time favorite events that we do here um, at the station. And uh, we're going to share a Best of program on Monday, as I'll be spending the day with uh, your pastors and mine uh, throughout the day um, on uh, on Monday. So just wanted to mention that. By the way, if you are in need of prayer and you'd like... Uh, you value having a chance to play for others, pray for others, rather. Uh, We are partnering with Adventist Health to provide a 24-7 prayer network. It's called Prayer Works. It's an online community where you can post your prayer requests and concerns and struggles. You can even share a bit more of your story, read other people's requests and stories, and let them know you're praying for them, too, so you can be encouraged and be an encouragement to others. I want to encourage you to visit kpdq.com, the keyword is prayer and join the prayer works prayer community today we're partnering not only with uh, adventist health but also with our sister station the fish it's a great opportunity for the body of christ uh, to connect beyond our local congregations again go to kpdq.com the keyword is prayer you can join the prayer works prayer community uh, today uh, really excited about that I also wanted to let you know we're in the summer months, but it's not too late to take advantage of listener savings through our school tuition discounts. That has been extended. If you want to give your child a rich Christ-centered education and want to do it in a way that's affordable, you want to check out KPDQ's uh, site where 40% Uh, Savings are available uh, for some of the remaining Christian schools in the Portland metro area. Uh, You can visit Listener Savings, that's with an S, listenersavings.com right now and save. That's uh, listenersavings.com. All right, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program and James Blend for producing. It's always a pleasure to spend the afternoon with you, so I'd like to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And we hope you'll join us here tomorrow for a bit of fun Friday um, in the afternoon. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.